Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Sub Club Podcast. I'm your host, David Bernard, and with me as always, my colleague, Jacob Eiding. Say hello. Hello, everybody. So today our guest is Darius Mora. He's the chief marketing officer at Reflectly, the world's largest journaling app. Reflectly is consistently in the top five health and fitness iPhone apps in the U.S., competing against companies 10 times its size. Over the past six months, Reflectly has broadened its scope, acquiring eight new apps in the mental fitness space. Darius has been in the app space for almost a decade and founded four app startups prior to joining Reflectly in 2018. He's been focused on ASO, free marketing, paid user acquisition, and retention for both Android and iOS apps. Welcome to the show, Darius. Thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into some of the uh, Reflectly um, juicy bits that I'm dying to hear about, I did want to get into some of your, your background before that. So um, you were with four different app startups, and w- one of my favorite things to learn about is, is the misses. So, you know, I've had, gosh, 25 apps on the App Store, and I feel like I've learned more from the failures than the successes, um, though I've had a, a mix of both. So why don't you tell us just a little bit about some of those app companies? You know, did, did they flame out? You know, were some successful? And, you know, how did things go uh, before joining the rocket ship that is uh, Reflectly? Sure. So I, I started off building companies right out of college. And my, my first company was actually a student magazine. Um, and, you know, we worked on it for about two years. And it was so much hard work and struggle. And, you know, after two years, we reached like 13,000 people, which was success for a student magazine. That was in Denmark. And then I realized that we just worked our asses off. And the reach was so small compared to anything tech or digital. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And and this was you know ten years ago, so I'm starting to think about like, damn, I need to get into this whole tech thing. And I had no idea, right? I I was an engineer. I never built anything myself, so I, I sort of switched over to looking at tech. And, and I started off. The first one was a language learning company, and we, we did all the usual mistakes. You know, it was first just a website. I hired a bunch of interns. We spent half a year building it without talking to a single user. <laughs> release it, crickets, like all the usual. No, mistakes it didn't work. Do. I didn't. <laughs> That's a shocker. At least you didn't. At least you didn't uh, raise a billion and a half dollars. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it was all. It was all bootstrap at that point. But then we switched over to mobile. Started to learn a bit more about apps. And and I tried originally doing the the typical Silicon Valley route. So we went to San Francisco. We raised a bit of money. We did the incubators, all of that, but still sort of uh, burned out. And then we tried a bunch of other companies, but nothing worked worked quite as well as Reflectly. And I think it's, it's kind of a fun story how I joined Reflectly is that I was working for a different company at the time because all my companies have failed miserably. So I was just trying to occupy myself with something else. And, and I found this really cool app called Reflectly. And I don't remember how I found it. I think a friend of mine showed it to me. And I thought it was like such a smooth, beautiful app. Um, and at this point, it was just the three original founders in Copenhagen just not working on it. And it was a beautiful app. And I thought it was a, like a San Francisco big startup raised a lot of money. It was just so nice and so smooth. So I found a website and I emailed them and I'm like, listen, guys, app is beautiful, but you're not doing a lot of the growth stuff. Like maybe I could just help you out. And if you want some free advice, I'm happy to share stuff. And then basically Jacob, the CEO, calls me the next day and offered me the job on the spot. <laughs> and after I've been more back and forth, I ended up joining them as the, the first employee. That's awesome. That's really cool. 
Um, and that actually gets into what, what I wanted to start talking about, asking you more questions on is, um, so Reflectly is a pretty small team for how big the app is. Like, how has that been? And how big was the, the team when you joined? And then uh, where are you guys at now as far as uh, team size? And, and then just, you know, being able to build such a great, a great big app with such a small team. Yeah, so... When I joined, I was the first employee. So just three engine, three, three of the original founders, uh, wow. the two Jacobs and, and Daniel. Um, so we were four people. Um, and so what is interesting about Reflectly is that I, I saw the initial numbers before I joined and it just was off the charts. I've never seen anything like that. And the fact that they got the first half a million users organically without spending pretty much any money. So there wasn't a business model just yet, just a mm-hmm. free app. Grew to half a million users organically. And I was like, shit, this is something is really good. So that's when I joined, we turned on the business model subscriptions and people started paying and we're like, okay, this is a verification. So as soon as I jumped on, then we started pouring money into marketing and sort of growth was from there. Um, and that was about, I think, two years ago. Now we're at, yeah, I think 12 million users on the apps and the team is probably, I think it's around 10 people um, of wow. full-time employees. I think what's really fascinating that, that Reflectly itself has two and a half engineers on it, which is, you know, incredible and and that's only possible because we have flutter we can deploy android ios and web i was i was gonna say i think you're one of the first like when when people ask like are there serious apps using flutter like reflectly is the one that comes to mind it's like somebody who's executed at a really high level uh yeah. with with flutter and i think that i think that's awesome and I, I mean just generally i love the love the like lean aspect of like how much impact you can have with an app company with so few people right you know, and to toot the app store horn, this is one of the app stores, like great secrets, right? It's like, it gives you this, like, you know, talk about your, uh, your, your high school or not, sorry, actually your, your college newspaper that you had to push uphill with probably like way more work to get to 10,000 yeah. people. And now the like the leverage you get with these distribution channels, is just, is just crazy. Yeah. And now we'll get, you know, 20, 20,000 new installs a day or something like that. So it's, it's, not, it's off the chart, <laughs> but all the credit goes to the engineers. Absolutely. Like all the credit, you know, reflectively is a amazing app. People love it. And the fact that it's such a strong product, that it's beautiful. You know, we won the, the Google design award last year and it's all thanks to the engineers. They've, you know, they've built it and scaled it to the point where we don't need to have, you know, 50 engineers or 20 marketers on a team. So I think all the credit should go to the engineers, but I'm here speaking on their behalf. Now that you're 10 people, like how does that break down? So you only have two and a half engineers. That just, that does seem crazy to me, even as somebody who believes in the power and scalability of apps, who else is on the team? Like what are the roles? Yeah. So, I mean, it's two and a half engineers just for Reflectly. And then we have some other engineers working on some of the other products. Um, so like I said, we've acquired a bunch of, bunch of apps and we have some guys working on that. And then we have on the, um, so I run the, um, I'm the CMO, run most of the User acquisition. Um, we have so the original founders are Jacob, the CEO. He does most of the business stuff. Helps a lot on the marketing side. Helps me a lot with the user acquisition and some of the Facebook stuff. Then we have Jacob, uh, the other Jacob. He's a uh, chief product officer. He's a designer, an incredible talented guy. Um, he did. He's a front end engineer and did the design as, as well. And he won the Google Design Award. I've never seen anybody who can execute so well in two different areas and just be world class in both of them. And then we have Daniel, he's the CTO and he, he runs all the, all the back and he's also an incredibly smart guy. So the base was super strong and, and really high. And, and that's sort of the basic setup. Then we have some engineers working on the, the front end and we're starting to hire some more, uh, more in the, the marketing role as well. Um, so we have some you know, great new hires that join us from some other big companies like Revolut and we're starting to convince other people to come <laughs> over to us. Nice. 
It's amazing. It gets a little bit easier as, 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 as you get more successful, the, the, the selling for the company becomes a, a bit, a bit easier to do. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and like, you know, two years ago, nobody would answer our emails and now yeah. you know, we get a lot of inbound. So <laughs> kind of happens overnight, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I, I know this is like was further on in our agenda, but you mentioned app acquisitions. Is it too early to talk about that? Cause I, I'm, I'm kind of really curious. Uh, so, so you mentioned that at the beginning of the call and that, and that you've kind of decided to grow by acquire, can you tell us like a little bit about, I don't, are, are they public or, or what's the, uh, what's the story with, uh, with acquiring apps? Yeah. So we haven't, we haven't disclosed all of the, the titles of the apps publicly. Um, but basically we have seen some incredible opportunities. And I think one thing that we realized we're world-class at is getting users to the app and then monetization and then the onboarding process and all of that. I think we're really, really, really good. And there's a ton of apps that are high quality apps, maybe, you know, and it's a lot of times it's an indie developer or, or a small team of engineers that build it out and the product is really good at retention, but they don't know how to bring users to the app and they don't know how to monetize properly, do the onboarding part, and then, you know, take care of the retention. So we just saw a lot of opportunities there. And that's mostly Jacob, the CEO. He's, you know, very smart with, with spotting out these opportunities. And, and we decided to take an active role in them, not just partnering up, but starting to acquire. Mm-hmm. And it has worked out really well. So we figured we'll, we'll keep going. It's kind of interesting. It would be interesting to see, to see how that uh, how that plays out in your like your journey, you know, from one to ten to hundred million, and and then just to to see because I think I think that's that's one thing. I mean, with with Revenue Cat's story, but but more more generally, is there's a lot of commonalities, right? There's a lot of I think I don't know if you if you're thinking about it as in terms of a studio model, but that that's one way maybe to look at it is like how do we operationalize like all of these things that are in common between these different categories? Do you have a thesis around? Is it all around like self care and 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 you know basically the the reflectly vision, or is it are you branching out into like totally different verticals? Yeah, so we were focusing on what we we call it the 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 mental fitness space. So it's not you know that sort of mental health, but mental fitness um, and. We are very confident in that category. We've seen a lot of success with Reflectly, and we realized that we can copy paste what we've learned onto other products and then scale them very rapidly. So there's a lot of you know scenarios for the future. You know there might be sort of the calm route where you keep building your own product, sort of keep going strong, and you try to get that to you know a billion dollar evaluation. Or there's another model where you keep acquiring apps and and do it that way. So we see a lot of potential scenarios. Um, our objective was to sort of be able to build out a very solid foundation and solid business. So we didn't want to, you know, raise a ridiculous amount of money and then having mm-hmm. to have an overflown evaluation and focus on vanity metrics. We wanted to have sort of a more of a down-to-earth solid business, which unfortunately is just not as obvious or not as common as you'd expect. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's becoming more so. I think the I, I think in SaaS, but also in like consumer apps, like the um the need for capital is going down, which I think Gil's noticed that you know, our friend, our mutual friend Nico, might not love to hear that, but like, uh, <laughs> I mean, it just means that they're they're, they're going to be more competitive to get into companies because yeah, it's really easy, especially with things like the App Store and and on our side of the business, things like Stripe and and stuff, and and just the fact that like infrastructure can be rented and things can be experimented with and scaled very cheaply, that it really just doesn't take what it used to to get something off the ground, and I think. And I think like strategically, it's really smart because the leaner you are, the more options you have and options are, you know, leverage. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, and it wasn't always easy, you know, for example, even a year ago or, you know, two years ago where we, the path wasn't so clear. And, you know, once you start to grow and once you start to hit millions of users, we got emails from pretty much every VC in the world. And it, it's not easy to say no to some of these offers. 
So it definitely wasn't easy, but we feel like now there's a very stable business. It's a very predictable business. We can definitely see the clear path. So it feels it's easier to sleep at night. Yeah. That kind of gets into one of the questions I did want to ask about. Um, I was talking to Thomas Pettit, or actually, and he, he was talking about this on a, on a podcast he did. He was talking about how like he's been seeing more and more apps kind of hit a ceiling that you know you you get to five, ten, fifteen million dollars in ARR, and your your user acquisition just gets really challenging because you got to go beyond the Facebook and the Google and and you the the unique the economics stop working because your user acquisition costs start going up. You need a bigger team to manage, and it, it just is, gets really tough at that ten or fifteen million mark. So I'm, I'm curious kind of how you, you've been thinking about that. And it, it seems like maybe you already answered the question is that by expanding into a portfolio, you kind of address a larger um, market versus just trying to go, you know, build a billion dollar business with, with Reflectly alone. But yeah, tell me, tell me a little bit about, you know, how you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. So from, from the marketing standpoint, it definitely gets more expensive as you grow. You start out, you know, you exhaust your audiences on you know, Facebook and Snap and TikTok and all these channels. And there's only so much you can optimize. So there's definitely a glass ceiling. And it doesn't make sense at some point to keep acquiring more users at the current business model. So I think there's only really three solutions that I've seen sort of done successfully um, to, to, to get past that glass ceiling. I think number one is sort of what a lot of people start to work on and hope for is the calm model where you keep building features and you find something incredible like the sleep stories that calm discovered. And then they just skyrocket and they can, you know, either raise a lot of second market. product market fit. Right? Like exactly. Product market fit, yeah. yeah. So this is what everybody wants to achieve. The issue is that it's impossible to predict because, you know, Calm didn't plan for sleep stories. They just kept building features, kept building great stuff. And suddenly it worked and, you know, off they went. And, you know, they, they scaled $2 billion on the back of sleep stories and Instagram stories sort of as their, as their channel. Mm. That's how they got it. So, that that's one model, although it's impossible to predict for, and it's difficult because if you want to get you know so high, you need to have a lot of employees, and you know, Calm has whatever hundred employees, hundred million dollars in capital, and the management of the whole thing becomes very very difficult. So that's one option, but impossible to predict. The other option is sort of choose not wanting to grow you know hundred percent year over year, but steadily grow very solid business like Sleep Cycle, for example. You know, that's a mm-hmm. very lean team. I think it's like twenty people, sort of small business, but it. It's a very, very strong business. And for the founders and everybody in the company, it's generating a lot of money. So necessarily, you don't have to build a billion-dollar company, but it's extremely valuable. And if you don't raise a lot of money, if you keep a lot of the business for yourself, that's a great option. And definitely, you know, you as a founder is going to, are going to, you're going to be very wealthy and have a big impact. So that's, that's another option. And then I think the third option is sort of the um, Berkshire Hathaway of the internet where you keep acquiring apps and just kind of keep you know, building a wide portfolio and, 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 and increase the revenue that way. And become the Sultan of, uh, become the Sultan of Copenhagen. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So these are the sort of, I think, three scenarios that we've seen done successfully. What, what about the fourth? Like, how do you think about revenue expansion with your existing users and the potential to either, you know, add premium tiers or consumables or any kind of additional ways to monetize the existing user base? Yeah, sure. I mean, and I think a lot of companies are experiencing with that, whether, it's, I don't know, for example, we've seen online courses or physical products and Headspace has been doing a lot of that. Or you try to go B2B like Headspace or Palm has like airport, the, the little... The, yeah, the boots. They, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Partnerships. Boots. They have one here in the Columbus airport. Yeah, it's wild. <laughs> right, exactly. Palm has like a physical product at CVS. 
There's like a, uh, I think it's like some kind of a, a scent that you can buy at CBS. You know what it tells you? As soon as those, uh, those Instagram stories ads got too expensive. And so it was cheaper to buy ads <laughs> at the CBS, apparently. <laughs> like, yeah. You got to just go to the yeah, next exactly. channel, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, so there is, I mean, like, this is also an option. And we've seen companies that what they do, they, they use the, the app as a sort of a, just an acquisition channel. Because if you can acquire an app install user, for you know whatever dollar fifty on Facebook is cheaper than acquiring an email address for for e-commerce or, or SaaS business at ten dollars. Mm-hmm. So there's use that as a funnel and then upsell on top of it. And then we've seen that done with, for example, courses or some other products. And and just like you know the, some of the good YouTubers will use YouTube just as a funnel to upsell products in the back end. So that might work. I just haven't seen it sort of scale really well, and I haven't seen anybody that can match the side revenues to the main revenue of the subscription. The subscription ad business is so incredible, and especially once you hit you know year two, three, four of the recurring revenue, then it becomes really interesting. It just takes a long time to get there, and most people don't have the patience to wait around. I wonder to this ceiling. I haven't dug into the data uh, too much because there's just not that many apps that are at that 10 million ARR and beyond. I mean, there's there's a lot, but there's not like thousands probably. Uh, maybe there's low thousands, but. It would be interesting to see if this is a ceiling or if it's just a like, we're early, right? Like apps Hmm. subscriptions have just only been around for such a fixed period. People still haven't figured it out. I I wonder if like what's actually like just some experimentation, us figuring the funnels and steps out is, is going to be, oh, you know, actually it was a $30 million like ceiling or, you know, I don't, I don't know what the, 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 the overall growth of subscriptions on the app store is, 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 is growing double digit percentages a year. So you just add that to that 10 million and that's going to become more than 10 million pretty fast. Right. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think with all these companies you're talking about, it's, it's this early innings still, I think in, in five years, we're going to look back and have some playbooks, right? We'll have the way Calm did it. We'll have the way Headspace did it. We had the way you guys will do it. And you know, of course, like the ecosystem is going to have moved on at that point and everything's going to be different. But in hindsight, it's going to be like, oh yeah, well, you just got to copy so-and-so's playbook, right? Which will, you know, of course not work in 2025 probably, but you know. Yeah, definitely. And and I, it does feel like we're in the middle of a gold rush. It definitely feels that way. Like there's just huge opportunities and shiny objects every day all around. So the hard thing is staying focused. And then like you're saying, just are you willing to wait out five years until you start, you know, get, generating that recurring annual revenue. So it becomes much more interesting down the line. Speaking of which, I'd love to hear how you think about and how Reflectly thinks about retention. We, we just did a blog post about Apple's 85-15 split and how you know so many people churn out, especially monthly and weekly subscribers just churn out at such high rates. You know, how, how have you all done on retention and how do you think about your retention strategies? Yeah. So, I mean, like the obvious basic thing is just building an amazing product that people love. And I think so many people forget that in the early stages and they try to do this mm-hmm. notifications and emails and, and all kinds of push and interruptions to the users in like desperate needs to get them back. And it's so sad. A lot of times when I go to conferences is that most of the things that the vendors are selling at the conferences are problems that are fixed by just a better product. Like it's all these like quick hacks and get an SMS marketing email. And there's a time and place for that. But for example, Reflectly has been incredibly under-optimized. We haven't used some of the most basic strategies like, you know, notifications and sending emails to our users and, and all of the sort of, you know, like fancy stuff. We, you know, we ran the first couple of years super under-optimized because we were focused on building an amazing product and just scaling it as fast as we could. And I think people just don't realize how, Unless you have that really good retention, you shouldn't be doing anything else. Like none of, none of the other stuff will matter. 
you might be able to improve, you know, some of the metrics a little bit here by there by sending whatever onboarding emails or something like that. But unless you have that amazing retention, you shouldn't be working on anything else. And uh, for example, I've been previously in teams where they would have an entire, I was hired once to, to, to lead a growth team and there's like a six person growth team. And this company didn't have a product market fit based on bad retention. And I was like, my first order of business was to fire the entire growth team because we don't need them and just build a better product because you can't fix retention with better growth strategies. That's, that's just all product. So yeah. I think the guys at Reflectly have been incredibly laser focused, the engineers on building an amazing product. And then my job and the marketing and the growth job is super easy. So <laughs> we get to take credit for their hard work. Yeah, I mean, it's the leaky bucket you hear sometimes called, right? Like don't dump money and don't dump users into a leaky bucket. Um, yeah. But I think I think you hit on something true there because I've been through this path of of like thinking being over, retention is a metric that measures product market fit, right? It's not a goal in itself. And so like, if you don't have retention, it's not a retention problem. It's a product market fit problem. Like you have not built something that people really, really need. And you can... You can, like you said, you can do hacks. You can do hacks in the product as well. So like you could do things like, oh, let's take our content and split it over three days so we boost our three-day retention. Or let's like put some carrots here at like X and Y dates, right? And you, you may, yeah, maybe you'll get some lift in it, but you really haven't, you know, markedly improved the user's lives. Versus if you step back and just go like, okay, what is the, why is the user here? What are they trying to get out of this? And how, how can we actually help them and provide value? And I, you know, this thing with value is weird. It's like, you, it's really hard to point at what value is and like how it's created and et cetera, et cetera. But I think we are very intuitive at it as far as like what we'll spend money on, right? Like I think yeah. users, if you're providing a lot of value, whether or not a user knows it or you tell them with a push notification or an email or whatever, you're user's not going to unsubscribe, right? Because they're going to go like, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm not going to, you know, unsubscribe reflectly because like, okay, maybe I didn't use it. Maybe I missed the, I didn't get annoyed by a push notification that told me to write in my thing, but but I still know it's valuable. So I'm not going to leave. And that that all goes back to that like product focus, that like user-centric focus. Right? Yeah. And I think the problem is like, I mean, as soon as you, you know, listen to a couple of podcasts or read some books or whatever, and watch any course, everybody will tell you retention is the number one thing you should look at. And so many people that I, especially the sort of new founders or small companies I talk to, the problem is that they don't know what's the actual number they need to hit because mm-hmm. it's such a secretive metric that no company will actually release it like common headspace because they know that it's, it's pretty much the measure of how valuable the business is, right? Mm-hmm. On the product side. So nobody's going to tell you the actual metrics and they differ on, you know, on Android to iOS by country, they differ by category. Mm-hmm. So you can't go somewhere and be like, okay, if I have 20% retention on day seven, then I'm good nobody will tell you. And I think that's the issue. People just don't know what they should be striving Bench for. And it's this like blurry of like, I know it should be good retention. And I feel like 10% on day seven is good. So I'm going to go with it. Right. Yeah. There's uh, and it, and it, and it's shifted because I mean, there were like benchmarks that we would use in, in pre-subscription land for like day one, you know, you'd hope for like 50 day one, 25 day seven, and then like 10 day 30 or something like that, the usage retention. And those were just kind of yeah, rough benchmarks, but I don't think good benchmarks have been put out yet on on subscriptions. I think the onus might be on this uh, com- revenue cat company to do that. <laughs> we just have to get <laughs> yeah. around to it. Um, but I think there there is kind of a median. Kind of people know what the median is. The other problem is is like when you ask Calm, like, what's your retention? There's all yeah, like you're saying, there's all kinds of ways you can cut it to look good or bad. You could say like, oh, which what I'm really interested in, what's the retention of your most recent cohort, right? 
but you could say like, what's your retention? You just go like, well, I've got all these like hundreds of old cohorts that are really matured and already churned out. Right. Right. And if you blend that all with like new, it's like, well, okay, my retention is really, really great. And it's like, well, is it really, but that is important. Right. And we talk about this, like the strategy of stacking over time and getting to that, that past those 10 million mark and, and, and whatever, those old cohorts do matter a lot. Right. So it's not like, totally unnecessary or like totally like you know um what you call them vanity metrics right but yeah i think uh i think (laughs) i think as the marketplace develops and matures these will be things that become a little more clear for yeah but so i'll 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 give you and the listeners one hack so and and this this works even if your product is not great so you shouldn't be doing this but (laughs) let one hack to get better retention and i'm not kidding this works on every app across the board in every country is getting users to pay if they commit money, they're going to perceive it as higher value products psychologically. They're going to use it more. So a lot of times we've seen companies like the single biggest jump in their retention has been getting users to pay upfront, for example, an annual subscription. That jumped on yeah, retention more than any other feature. We've seen that in a lot of companies. So that's one way to hack it. But yeah. I think you have to be a product on the um, the level of a Reflectly. I think that's people have it. I mean, you have to have a product that people are willing to pay for. But if you look at just like, if you have a certain benchmark, you're going to bump it up, get people to pay up front and they're going to perceive it as higher value because they committed money, they're going to use it more. And you'll have better, you'll have better everything because like you'll churn out all the customers who didn't love you that much early and and you'll just be stuck with people who are really committed in some way. And, 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 uh, and, uh, you know, there's also like obviously cash flow incentives too. If you can get a bunch of people to book annual revenue up front, that helps with acquisition strategies and staying lean and things like that as well. It's kind yeah. of been, that's one of the strategies I've kind of seen people coalescing around uh, is is this like trial into a yearly. I, I tell people that that's like always a good place. I mean, maybe that's not the place I would suggest people start because I think, I think monthly subscriptions are useful for getting some data and just like getting a low barrier to entry, getting more users paying, right? And onto your premium product. But I think when I've seen, I've seen this more than once in like longer, like companies like going through some of the scaling motions is they tend to gravitate towards that over time. Like, okay, like we've got the product figured out. We've got some data, like let's move to this like more simplified pricing scheme. Yeah, and and the truth is like, I think a lot of times, monetization is easier than retention. Like if you can figure out how to build an amazing product right. that works, monetization is not really difficult. That's that's not the difficult part. It's building the product. Right, right. And if you get that out of balance, it's it's tough to recover, right? Yeah. Yeah. I love that you flip that on its head to talk about product, but so then so then I still want to answer the same question, except not about retention, but about product. So then like internally in Revenue Cat, how, how do you think about finding that product market fit and improving that product market fit. And like, you know, you, you said at the outset that you know, Reflectly is really good at, at onboarding. Um, so how do you think about, and are you A-B testing the onboarding? Are you like, how, how, how do you step through that process of building that product that people really care about and are willing to pay for and then ultimately retain? Yeah, so I think there's a great example, just a great example of how smart the and, and thoughtful the three original founders of Reflectly were. So before they started Reflectly, they had they decided, okay, we're going to build our own business. And they had three ideas. So they built three landing pages, drove some traffic, and then watched what happened. And Reflectly, if I'm not mistaken, got about 40,000 emails within you know a couple of weeks with just putting a bit, bit a little bit of money behind Facebook ads. So they said like, oh shit, there's immediately we see that this resonates with people. It just had you know the name, the title and one screenshot. And 
they could tell there was something there. It wasn't product market fit, but they knew they were pursuing something, an idea that had demand behind it already. Then they built an MVP super quickly. Um, and actually, originally, it was meant to be, the idea was to do like a messenger journal, or they even tried to do like a voice journal where somebody calls you and you tell mm. them and they transcribe it. People got really weirded out. It was all kind of sketchy. <laughs> uh, but they didn't want to build an app originally. They wanted to try sort of all the other ways, but eventually settled on building an app because that's what everybody's asking for. Please give us an app. They built an MVP super quickly in a couple of weeks using Flutter. And it, actually, it wasn't a Flutter originally. They just built an MVP. I think it was native. And then they decided it worked. And then, you know, a month later, they built a really solid product. And that's how perfectly scaled. And I think so many times people start off with like, I have an idea that I want to push to the world. Mm. And I'm going to try to push it. And the guys were like, here's a couple of ideas. If, you know, we're going to get it out there. If, if, if people take it, then we're going to pursue it. So that was the first step of how we thought about letting the market speak for itself and never telling them what we think is a good idea. So it all evolved as on the pull side, not on the push side. And in terms of, yeah, we built the original product and I think we're very, very rigorous and very aggressive in our testing, in the split testing of the onboarding and every screen and every button and all of that. And, and the first year we spent so much time just, just, just split testing the product. Wow. Uh, and we would, you know, try to do a new release, I don't know, like once a week at least, um, if not more frequently and, and see the numbers go. So I think we got to this point because I, th- I think we, we managed to test more than than what the average company would test. That's definitely early, like to be testing like that early in a product's life cycle. A lot of times you go on intuition and, and you know, what you think works. And then later you when you're trying to like, you know, your retention's your, your usage retention is stuck. You're like, okay, let's try to like test our way to, to, to victory. Yeah. But it sounds like you, you did it very, very early. Yeah. And, and that's like the whole name of the game is the same with marketing. You know, we'll like on the marketing side, we'll launch hundred campaigns 90 are not going to work. Maybe there's seven that will kind of break even and three of them will really sort of pull all of that money. So it's all about just you test faster than anybody else, both on the product side and the marketing side. I think that's how we got here because we just test so much faster. That's um that's a theme I've seen too about of, of companies like, you know, it's it transitions from product development at some point then, you know, in, in your, your specialties, being the best marketing team, like being the best at acquisition and being faster and smarter than your competitors churn is always just like high on these consumer subscriptions. And I think it will always be higher than like a B2B app uh, or a service. Um, so partially like growing your business is how do I push, like how do I build a machine that pushes a boulder uphill, right? Like you have to find something to do it really more efficiently yeah. than your competitors, right? And so I, I've seen that theme kind of emerge as well. I'd love to dig in a little bit to that because I, 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 you know, there's a, there's a lot of complexity in, in testing as far as like, you know, you're A-B testing something in the onboarding and then you're mixing that with a pricing test and you're mixing that. I'd love to hear both like your tech stack, like what, you, what y'all were using, but then also just kind of your testing strategy. Because I also find that, you know, it seems like some people can easily A-B test themselves into, or actually this is again on uh, uh, Thomas Petta, he was talking about this. If, if you A-B test enough, you end up with a porn site. <laughs> Like you can over-optimize in the wrong direction. So gradient descent over human desires, right? Like maybe not the most, the best way to build something. So I take it just based on kind of, you know, what you've been discussing. It's like, you don't just A-B test, but you have a strategy and kind of a product mindset behind that 
tell me more about that and how, how you actually implemented that, how you think about product testing. I think we consider that the general thesis is that we're trying to build a learning machine. And the more we can learn, like and the more tests you run, the more you're going to learn and the better you're going to be. And so I think that's the sort of overall thesis and, and the overall perspective. And we've put, you know, just as much effort into, into splitting and, and testing and figuring out what works to actually building out the product. And I think that has worked really, really well. And being obviously just incredibly knowing your numbers and being very analytically minded and, and you know, be able to understand amplitude and, or whatever mix plan or whatever tool you're using, revenue cat obviously as well. Being able to understand the numbers like very, very deeply and, 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 and figure out not just the, the sort of first level data, but be able to get in. Um, so luckily we have you know, amazing people um, on the team and the engineers are very smart and they can understand not just what happens within the product, but also sort of understanding, like, okay, if we change an acquisition channel is going to change some of the type of users that were coming in that might affect the, our, our conversion rates and all these things. Uh, and when you have a super tiny team like we do, it's very easy to communicate and sort of be in touch what the others are doing. So that way we can, yeah, we know what, what might have an effect on, on, on something downline in the product. Nice. So, so with the, with the testing, I mean, were you are you saying you're using amplitude for your AB testing and would you, would you just be really disciplined about like this week we're testing this, we're going to get hundred thousand users through this uh, variant and a hundred thousand through this variant. And then we're going to, I mean, would you have kind of product meetings to, to talk about the results of those tests and kind of think through what the, the real implications were versus like what the numbers were telling you and even looking at some of the downstream effects of what that specific A-B test was affecting on retention or downstream numbers? Yeah, so unfortunately, there isn't a really sort of easy and clever way to, to A-B test in the product at the same time. So what we would do is just, you know, get a version out see what it performs, get another version out, see how that performs and compare the results. Like that's, I think, super simple and, and, and down to earth. And it's actually, it's, it, it, yeah, it's the engineering team that would look at the numbers and, and run all these tests and, and they would do all of the onboarding stuff. So a lot of times you'll have the, the organization split in a way where the, the growth team will sort of overlap to the engineering team and the sort of mix up in, in between. Or a lot of times even the growth team will be in charge of the onboarding and then engineering team has, has, is responsible for like everything downline for, you know, retention after people have onboarded. Yeah. And we've done it where, where marketing growth is responsible for getting people in and then engineers um, and, and, and the engineering team uh, takes them from once they got in and then sort of do all the onboarding tests and, and, and all of that optimization as well. So I think they're a very business-minded engineering team, which has been super helpful because we, we knew exactly what our numbers were we, and we, we knew the CAC, we knew the LTV, we knew what we needed to hit and the engineers understood it very well. Um, and they sort of drew the push to, to grow the business, not just build like fancy and nice features or things that work well, but it was, are we building things that are actually pushing our retention or pushing our revenue or pushing an important metric? I think this is a, um, yeah, important, like when people think about testing an A-B, it doesn't always have to be side by side, like with some complex like splitter functionality. If you have enough users and you're, two, two things need to be true. One, you have enough inbound. Three things, okay. We need enough inbound. Two, those inbound sources need to be fairly like uniform. Like you need to not have like big things happening all the time that are sending different user bases your way. Um, and then third, you need to be testing things that are big enough. You need to be testing feature. Like you can't be testing like the color of a button nine pages in, right? You're never going to get data or anything interesting. You need to be taking big 
bold changes early on and ideally in onboarding or, or very shortly after to get data really fast. And in that case, if you're able to, you know, that, that's a lot on the app store to spin a release every week, right? That's not, that's, that's not easy. That means you got to have like good QA, you got to have good processes and stuff like that, but you can do that with a really small team as I think as opposed to yeah. maybe like a more, a more formal or sophisticated AB testing or testing thing, which you're talking about, David, which is where you're like, maybe running multiple tests at once. And it's a big management problem. It's like, how do I, how do I not have crosstalk between tests and how do we analyze the data correctly and stuff? There's a time and a place for like super precise stuff. If you're making testing big changes early on, like I think you, a lot of small teams could be doing more than, uh, than they might, you know, be, you know, cause they've been told it's so scary and dangerous. Right. But if you know. Yeah. And, and I think like, honestly, I think that people just overthink it. I think it's much yeah. easier then people sort of make it out to be, especially when you have a solid product. Like if you see that you have a lot of people coming in and, you know, it's, and then you'll hit a certain scale, like when you're acquiring 10, 20, 30,000 users a day, then, you know, like 1% conversion rate increase makes a lot of, you know, a huge difference to your bottom line. So at some point it makes sense, but you have to be in, in that scale of millions of users where these like tiny changes make sense. I think in the beginning, or even if you get, you know, before you get to 10 million ARR, I think it just, it, it, it doesn't have to be so fancy. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad I, I'm glad I kept digging deeper and deeper because <laughs> it feels like people are always striving for that like super sophisticated, we need optimizely and we need to be like running all these sophisticated split tests and we need to do this and that. So it's like really refreshing to hear you so focused on product and to kind of simplify things like, hey, we just released one thing one week and another thing another week and we ran the numbers and we looked at what performed better. Yeah. And I think that, you know, again, that's like, that's that product focus and not that like relentless AB testing where you're changing colors on buttons and yeah. stuff like that. At the end of the day, AB test data is also meant to be paired with product thinking, right? And talking to users, right? So if you are, if you're not doing any talking to actual users, uh, I think your A-B testing could lead you in very odd directions potentially, right? So you need to take that data. And, you know, sometimes in my past when we've A-B tested stuff, we would actually find the thing we wanted to do was a decrease in some metric, but we did it anyway because it was like something we wanted to do. Like it was, this is a broader product strategy thing for us, right? So there's not always like, you're not always like to Thomas's counterpoint there, you're not always just testing to increase the metric indefinitely. Sometimes you're protecting yourself from downside or just like measuring like, you know, intuiting or, and trying to confirm your beliefs about what, how people are interacting with something, but combining that with, you know, going back to the capital V founder vision or whatever, like you got to <laughs> combine a bit of that as well. Yeah. And I think people forget that it's not physics, right? This is not precise science. Like we say AB testing and we talk about all these like big talk about data and numbers and it's just, there's so many variables out of our control. So many nuances there's, you know, even in user acquisition, like yeah. Wednesday is different than Saturday because people just behave differently on weekends. Different weeks are different. Months are like, it just, it's not precise science. So trying to be 100% precise on, on all of this testing and data drain doesn't make sense because the data coming in is already blurry in the first place. So I think yep. people just approach it maybe at too much, they're too strict on themselves, I think. <laughs> yeah. But speaking of experimentation, I did want to jump into um, Reflectly's price experimentation. So I'd love to just hear kind of, um, you know, where you started with your subscriptions and maybe even the jump from 500,000 users and seeing some product market fit to then monetizing those users and then to kind of like your, your, your steps in the evolution of your pricing strategies 
and then you know kind of where you landed today and why you why you think that you know that that's the right strategy for Reflectly currently. Yeah. So full disclosure is that I wasn't part of all of the pricing tests, so I don't know the entire evolution. Um, when we started off, it was super simple, and I don't recall. So yeah, we got the first half a million users organically, and then we turned the business model. And I don't recall what the onboarding looks like or what the exact price is. I, I, I th- and but I think from the beginning we approached it in a very simple way. It's a common case for a product that has product market fit, right? Like <laughs> you're like, I don't even remember what we were doing. Like it didn't really matter, right? It was yeah. just growing. <laughs> yeah, like and at that point, like we just wanted to see if people pay. So I think we did yeah. something simple. But what we normally would do is that we would look at somebody that's you know a step ahead of us and be like, what are they doing? Because they already did this. They already spent the time and money and the resources testing. We'll just copy that and then sort of use it as a benchmark and then you know test from there. So that's always what we did when when we started off and we didn't know what was the next step. We just looked at somebody, you know, um, one or two steps ahead of you, and then you look at them. And especially when you look at and one way to do this also is look at a bigger company and look at their engineering team and see if they have a lot of engineers. That means probably spent a lot of time testing and optimizing and, and doing all these things. So you know they spend time thinking about it and they already have some results. So if it's close enough to your product, you can sort of look at that and 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 take it and run with it. It's the same with 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 marketing. You just see what works and then you get inspired, you do something similar and you go. That's how, you know, that's how Calm found their 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 Instagram story format. It's just sad that it worked on somebody else, copied it, and bam, it worked for them. They just managed to scale it much better. Um, so that's how we sort of started off with, with looking what works. So I don't know the entire evolution, how we got to where we are now, but I can tell you sort of general trends what we see from other companies as well is that it's it's nice to get the annual subscription because you get all the money up front. But a lot of times companies will get more money from doing the the monthly because you can sort of price it higher compared to the annual and you get a higher LTV down the line, but it comes, you know, after a, a couple of months of all the money up front. So depending on where you are, what stage you're in and how much pressure you need on, on scaling, you can decide which one you're going to sort of push more. Um, and then a lot of times people will do the lifetime subscription, but not that anybody's going to buy it, but just as a sort of psychological comparison, because if you have monthly annual lifetime, then annual actually looks pretty reasonable. And then if you're lucky, you know, a couple of people start buying the lifetime, which we've also seen, which I yeah. think is ridiculous. We, it elevated, buy a lifetime yeah. subscription. Yeah. I was surprised that uh, we threw it in there with the same logic. And when you started to see them come in, it was two things. It was like, wow, that's crazy. And second, you felt good. You're like, wow, somebody really yeah. loves us that much. Right. <laughs> they, or they hate subscriptions that much. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 But you know, if you can sell a $500 subscription, you know, why not go for it? A couple of those come in a week, then it's, it's a good day. You're done. Yeah. So lot, that's sort of <laughs> the general trend we've seen is yeah, sort of monthly. If you if you want to have a higher LTV, annual pushing. If you want to get you know the money up front and lifetime, just sort of as a comparison. I think that's a sort of a general model that works in a lot of different spaces. And then you know the annual renewal rate and the monthly renewal rate highly varies on your country, the demographic, the category you're in and all those things. Your product as well. That's one thing I've yeah. noticed with some of these core metrics is like, people ask me all the time, like, hey, what's the average monthly re- retention or whatever? And I'm just like, there is, the average is an uninteresting number because the distribution is so wide. Like it doesn't really, yeah, yeah. it doesn't really serve as a good summary statistic. Exactly. It's not physics. <laughs> but uh, I studied physics. So don't, don't forgive me if I try to make it physics. <laughs> so I feel like I know what I'm doing. 
we're starting to get short on time, but I, but before we we wrap up, I, I did really want to hear about um, and and you've done courses on this. People can search YouTube for it and um, and search your name. But um, you've done a lot of work on TikTok, and so I'm really curious to just hear kind of how you ramped up on TikTok, even like differences in willingness to pay versus other channels. And then you've also talked about your uh, some micro influencer strategies. So I'd love to 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 dig into that a little bit. Yeah. So, I mean, TikTok is obviously very interesting because it's a brand new platform and we've been on, we've been on TikTok sort of looking at it for over a year now. Um, and we've been sort of active on TikTok for over a year and we tried all different ways of, you know, growing a company profile organically by just posting, doing influencer deals, micro or bigger influencers, doing advertising. And I've been on TikTok personally, like trying to grow my profile and just see what works, what doesn't work. And a lot of times I've said that it's the biggest marketing opportunity of 2020 because nowhere else in the world can you get the type of exposure, the type of you know exposure and the the impressions that you can get on TikTok. And especially because when you're getting on organically, the algorithm is different than on Instagram. So when you post on Instagram, it's mostly displayed to your followers. If you don't have followers, then too bad. You're going to grow very very slowly, and it's really hard to grow on Instagram right now. But TikTok, when you post something, is not actually shown to your users. It's shown to a small fraction of potential users. And if the engagement is high, then it's shown to more users. And if it's high, it's shown to more users. And there's no upper limit to how many users are going to be shown mm. except for the total users of, of TikTok. So that's why it's fascinating. You can see people come on TikTok, post one video, and they get a million views. And we've seen companies skyrocket because something just went viral and it just went crazy and they got to the you know number one um, uh, spot in, in the app store. So that's why it's it's an incredible opportunity, but it's also much more volatile just because you have a million followers doesn't guarantee a certain number of views. So the algorithm is very much sort of skewed towards virality versus just having a lot of followers. So that's why it's a huge opportunity. And, you know, I, I got on and I could grow my profile like 30,000 followers in a couple of weeks. And it's not, you know, rocket surgery. It's pretty simple. You just do the same thing and what, what everybody's doing. And, and what kind of, wait, what kind of content do you post like CMO content to uh, TikTok? Like how do you, how did, what, what kind of content <laughs> did you post to grow that much that fast? I, I tried everything and I post, you know, everything from silly dancing videos to, to, and I got a lot of okay boomer comments. From <laughs> it's great to be a 30 year old uh, boomer. Yeah, exactly. That's where we are. But uh, Hey, that's, that's, but I, you know, I tried everything, but ironically the videos that by far the most, like I have a couple of videos with over a million views and those are the videos wow. where I, I did one video, one video on how to, how to build an app without coding and that mm. kind of crazy viral and I have some other videos. So that is actually about, you know, the app business, um, which was interesting for me to see because I got on and I thought like, if you look at the top creators, they're all doing, you know, stupid silly videos. You have to do that to grow. But actually, it's not true. A lot of people are providing a lot of value and you can grow that way. So that's on that sort of personal profile side with Reflectly with a business profile, it's much more difficult to, to be on TikTok as a business because it's very much a personal experience. Yeah. People want to see a face on a product. So when we, we would post on behalf of Reflectly and when you're like, when your logo or your, if your profile picture is your logo, it's an already no-no for a lot of users. They want to have, and the only time I've seen it done successfully is when it's like the CEO or somebody behind the business showing you behind the scene that you can't be too salesy. And the thing is the, the sort of formula to TikTok is just post as much as you possibly can because it's all about virality and you never know what's going to work. That it really is. That really is the 2020 social network, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Like it's all about, it's never it's stop so posting. <laughs> yeah. And it's so much, it's so much, it's quantity over quality. 
it, that like wow. that's exactly what it is because you're gonna post ten videos, none of them are gonna do nothing, but then one is going to go viral. But you yeah, don't know I what's mean, gonna go viral. It's the um it's the uncapped upsides, right? That's what Bezos says about like if you know if if one in a thousand bat swings you make a hundred million dollars, you should just swing the bat as many times as you possibly can, right? Like exactly. Uh, yeah. and so that the, the incentives all check out, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's the same formula for for testing content and creatives on when you're running, for example, ads on any platform. It's quantity over quality. Like you just want to throw every, don't, don't like show the market what you think is good. Show them everything you got and they'll tell you what's good. And then you can double down. But it's so like quantity over quality on, mark, on user acquisition versus on the product. It's all, you know, it's called quality. That's different. So from what I understand, that's, that's been your micro influencer strategy, right? Is that you, instead of paying one, 10 influencers $1,000 each and spending $10,000, you pay 1,000 influencers $100 each and then see what hits and then put the ad money behind the one that already kind of went viral on its own. Is that, is that kind of the, a good summary of how you're, how you're leveraging the micro influencers? Yeah. So it was actually last year we had, we saw like hyper growth, like crazy. And we're still seeing crazy growth, but last year we did micro influencers at scale. And I think we went from like one to 5 million users in just a couple of months. It was crazy fast. And the way we did it, we did yeah micro influencers scale. So anybody that has, you know, whatever, on Instagram, we did it, it was less than 10,000 or 20,000 followers. And what people don't realize about influencers is that it's not the value that they posted and you get the distribution. That's not the valuable bit. The valuable bit is owning the content and then running the content to a similar audience. So I could have a 35-year-old dude in England talking about a product and I would get the content that he produced and I would run it to all the 35-year-old dudes mm. in England. Because it's so much better than anything I can produce in-house. And we scaled yeah. like crazy. And, you know, I did it myself and Jake was helping me the CEO at the time. And we didn't have a, like a big marketing team. We didn't have content team. We just had nothing. We just did this at scale. And it was hyper, it was very relevant. Like when he shows up yeah. on your profile and it looks like your friend, you're not going to scroll through and actually watch it. Like we trust people that look like us and we buy from people that we trust. So it was sort of, you know, basic psychology. And we did it at scale and that was really our, our secret and I've given talks about this as well. And it works, you know, on, on any other platform, really. I was going to say, um, we're kind of doing that right now on this very podcast. Right? <laughs> uh, but, yeah. but, but it's interesting to think of like a company who's, who's Tam, who's, who's a customer base is any, every person on the earth that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you want, yeah. we found that, at, you know, in revenue cats content journey as we've like found what resonated, honestly, the best content that resonated was like the content that one of us was writing very passionately from a pay, place of knowledge. Right but that's really hard to scale. Um, but yeah. it seems like this is kind of a neat little hack here where you like get a whole bunch of people to produce a whole bunch of content and then you can exactly. and then you can pick the best of it and it doesn't have to be, you know, the nice thing about not being a developer tool is like the content doesn't have to be yeah. like, you know, you know, to be an expert exactly. to produce it, right? And then that's the thing, like a lot of times it was the content that looked shitty. That was the worst piece of content that I saw that performed the best because it didn't look <laughs> like an ad. And I remember yeah. specifically, there was one particular ad where a girl was sort of doing a selfie style video it was like a weird sepia filter. Her baby's crying in the background. She's saying she's mispronouncing the app, but that was the ad that just outperformed everything else. And I was so close of not running it. Wow. And I also did tests where I would spend you know, $20,000 on influencers and get the distribution from there. And then $20,000 on micro influencers that would put money behind the ads rather than distribution. And it's always the micro with the ads where I own the content that outperforms everything else. Wow. That's amazing. Are there platforms for this? How are you reaching out to that many influencers? So that's the, there's no platforms. That I, like 
The ones I found Refle- apparently the reflectly uh, growth team. That's the platform. <laughs> well, there, there are now. Zach uh, Zach Shaked actually introduced me to somebody who does this. They're, oh, they're a perfect, micro yeah. influencer video service where you pay you pay for the videos and then they um, then if you want them to actually run it on their channel, it's an additional fee. But it's like you can just yeah. buy that. You can just buy the the video creation to then run as ads. So it's just kind of fascinating. Yeah. Well, a lot of times the problem was that the platforms wanted to charge me like $400 per piece of content. I was like, I can get it for 20 bucks from the influencer. Like it doesn't make sense to pay them. So the way we scaled is like, I literally just hired one student and all day, every day she was DM influencers. That's all she did. Like she would DM them, talk to them over email. Once they agreed, they would send a video. It would be sent to the Philippines where an editor would edit it for like three bucks a video. And only then he would get it to me. And I wouldn't even see the content until it was in my folder now run into ads and that's how we scale it. So it was actually super easy. I didn't even think about it. So it's easy to build the growth machine. If you did, yeah, if you didn't believe my my point earlier about how it becomes about building a really good growth machine, I think you've just made it very clear that like, that's such a, I mean, it's important. And it, I think it plays into your story about being scrappy, right? Like you could go and pay this like agent to get $400 a lead, but like, you no, know, you, you found you could do it much cheaper by just, and that's, you know, tying it all back together. It goes back to my point about like capital needs being so much lower because you found somebody on Upwork, you hired a student to do the like, you know, the, the the messaging and then you probably automated it with some, you know, a handful of Zapiers or whatever your tool of choice is. And then you can build these like, these machines like so simply now that, yeah, it really just has changed <laughs> so much in the last, no, not even that long. This is like five years ago, six years ago, a lot of those pieces of infrastructure were not there that we have now. It's yeah. really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. It is. We are in the middle of a gold rush. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's a great place to wrap up. Um, so Darius, <laughs> tell, tell us a, a little bit more about where people can find you, um, about your, your uh, training videos and stuff like that. And, and Reflectly too, go, to go download the app, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So look up you know, Reflectly on the app store. I think if you type in happiness or happy, we're also number one. Nice. So it's pretty easy to find us. Reflectly.app on the website and it's on, uh, on, on iOS and Android. So go check it out. We're always hiring incredible people. So whether you're an engineer and we're built in Flutter. So even better if you can uh, write Flutter. There's not, there's not a whole lot of Flutter opportunities out there right now. So if you're a Flutter fan, this is your call. <laughs> yeah. And we are on the landing page of Flutter. So you're going to have the yeah. best spot to, to work on Flutter. So if you re- go on LinkedIn and find one of us and reach out to us. Same for growth. If you know, and we're looking always to expand more people. So reach out to us that way. And I personally have a blog, DariusMora.com. So that's D-A-R-I-U-S-M-O-R-A.com where I talk about all this stuff in a podcast, Darius Mora Show, which you can find on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And where I talk about, when I talk with other app founders that are going through the same journey. Very cool. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today, Darius. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was fun. To make sure you never miss an episode, Subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.